And please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22 and we'll be examining this morning verses 12 to 21. The last few paragraphs of Scripture. I started this series on the book of Revelation on the 28th of July last year. And I think I told you at the time that we would probably be finishing by the end of last year. I I didn't know that I'd be finishing this series on my last day here at Cornerstone. Who knows exactly what you and I will be doing in a year's time, or five years' time, or ten years' time. Well, the answer to that question is, is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows. He knows where you're going to be in a year's time, in five years' time, ten years' time. He knows, and it's not just because he is very clever and is able to work out what is going to happen between now and then. What we've seen in the book of Revelation is that he knows what's happening because he has written it. History is his story. He is king of kings, lord of lords. He's seated on the throne of the universe. He has written the scroll of history. And Jesus Christ is opening that scroll in his own time. He knows your future. He knows the good things that are coming. He knows the trials that are coming. He knows the the pains and the struggles that are coming. And in him, all of those things are in fact good. The book of Revelation, as we have seen, was written to suffering Christians. Christians who were suffering back in the, the ninth decade of the first century. Christians in the region of Asia Minor. This book was written to them And it it is written, it has been written to suffering Christians through all ages. And it makes so clear that the lives of Jesus' people are fully in his good hands. Now the book of Revelation ends as though Jesus has some final and urgent lessons to drive home to his churches as he wraps up this this mighty letter, the book of Revelation. And I can do no better than to make his final and urgent lessons my own exhortations this morning as I I preach this, this final sermon here at Cornerstone. So let's look together at these final 10 verses of the Bible. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we look now to you. We open our ears to hear your voice. We open our eyes to see you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will soften our hearts to receive your words this morning. And we pray in your name. Amen. Revelation 22, verse 12. Our Lord Jesus says, Look, Look, pay attention, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, 
and I will give to each person according to what they have done. And this promise, I am coming soon, along with verse 20, where he says just the same thing. Yes, I'm coming soon. This, this promise that, he's, that he is coming soon frames this, this final section of the book of Revelation. And when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, what he's saying is, I am longing to return and I am poised to return. There's a sense in which I am already on the way. That's what he means when he says, look, look, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. There's a sense of urgency. His coming is not in the far distant, misty future. It's imminent. He is poised and ready to return. And Jesus tells us this because in our temptations and in the trials we face and in our suffering and under attack, we want to give up. So often we feel like giving up. Or if we don't feel like giving up, we at least want to stop and, and rest for a while. Then we have that, that, that sense that the Christian life, it's hard. It's a strain. It's a struggle. I'm battling day after day. And, and, and I want to stop for a bit. I want to press the pause button. I want to rest a while. I've fought hard. And, and, and Christians think these kinds of things. I, I've fought hard. I deserve a little break, don't I? A little break from the rigours of, of faith and, and life under Jesus' rule. I deserve a little break from church, a little break from my prayer life, from reading the word, from serving, from obeying the Lord. Haven't I earned a little time to myself, a little time of indulgence, even a little sin? I mean, he is gracious after all. And so in the, in the strain of Christian life, when we are tempted to want to step back and, and, and to pause and even to give up, our Lord Jesus Christ says, don't give up. Don't press the pause button. Don't stop, stop straining and striving forward because I am coming soon. Stand firm, he says. Hold on, don't surrender, fight on, keep up the strain. I'm almost there, I'm poised to come. And never, never forget who I am. Look there at verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here, here is a single fact about Jesus that is made three times over. There's a sense of passion about this, isn't there? As though Jesus is, is passionately, emphatically making this one vital point. As though our Christian health and survival depends on grasping this. That he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He wouldn't have said it three times over if this wasn't vitally important for us. 
And in your struggle and in your strain and in the fight, you need to know this. You need to know that he was there at the beginning. There are some people who think that Jesus is, is the greatest of all living men, a great, a great teacher. Well, he was a great teacher. But he's not like any other human being who has ever lived because he was not created. Instead, he was the creator. The creator of all things. He was there in the beginning. When the heaven and the earth were, were dark and formless and void and empty, he was there. It was him who spoke those words, let there be light. And there was light. It was he who spoke the words that separated the waters above from the waters below. It was he who flung stars and galaxies into space. He was there at the beginning, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Our Lord Jesus says, we must understand this. You must understand this in your struggle and in your temptations. Understand that he, that the Lord, the person in whom you've put your trust and your hope, he was there at the beginning and he made all things. And he will be there at the end. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. He will return to wrap all things up and to bring final judgment. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2 that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a huge mistake. It's a tragedy. It's a wasted life not to know Jesus Christ, the creator, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's a greater mistake, a greater tragedy, a greater perversion to have known him and then to have given him up. And that's why your Lord is saying to you this morning, brothers and sisters, he knows your struggles. He knows that every step can be painful. He knows the fierce temptations that you feel in the dead of the night. He knows the agonies that you feel in your soul and in your mind. He knows because he was here. He lived on this earth. He was tempted. He knows. And he's saying, don't give, don't give up on me. Don't let go of me. I am poised to return. Be back any minute. You should have that that real expectancy of my coming. 
and I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, I made you, and I will see you on judgment day. Don't give up on me. Don't let go of me. Well, just, just to read those words that our Lord Jesus has, has spoken so far, just to read them is immediately to see our own weakness, my own heart stained with unfaithfulness and rebellion, selfishness. And it's right at this point when I grasp that Jesus is poised to return and that he's my creator and my Lord and that he will be my judge. It's right at this moment that I see how urgently I need his forgiveness and his cleansing. And that's why he, he, he says immediately in verse 14, blessed, happy are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the word, that word referred to those who abuse uh, drugs and other substances, mind-altering substances. We could probably put alcohol abuse in there. The sexually immoral, the word, Greek word porneia refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage. The murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, now what is Jesus talking about when he, when he talks about our robe? What does the robe symbolize? Well, it, it represents our moral condition in God's sight. And brothers and sisters, don't, don't, don't you immediately feel that, that when our Lord says, I'm poised to return and I'm your creator and I will be your judge, don't we immediately see just how filthy and stained that robe is that we wear? Our natural moral condition of terrible selfishness and, and rebellion. God, God made us to, to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We know we haven't done that. He made us to love our neighbour just as thoroughly as we love ourselves. We don't do that. Just to think about the return of Christ is to see that the robe of our moral condition is filthy with, with sin. Isaiah went so far as to say that even our righteous acts are filthy rags. Even the best things we do are stained and tainted with selfishness, rebellion, pride. There's only one way to have a clean robe, and we're going to need a clean robe when we stand in the presence of the King of Kings with those eyes of of blazing fire that see everything. They need to be washed. And in Revelation 7, we saw that, that those who belong to Christ have washed their robes 
and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, when we grasp that Jesus is poised to return and who he is, our creator, our God, the Holy One, and that we stand before him in judgment, we are immediately driven to the cross, immediately driven to his blood, the only thing that can wash us clean and make us right in his sight. Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. Now, there are those who do not, do not want to be washed from their sin, and Jesus talks about them here. They want to go on, go on in their substance abuse, their sexual immorality, in their murder, which includes hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness, in their idolatry, their lies. He says, they will have no place in the heavenly city. Now, don't don't you think, at this point, when, when when the entire Bible is being wrapped up in these last few verses, that it would all be positivity and triumph, that there's that warning right at the end of the Bible a warning right at the end that those who do not repent of their sin, who persist in their substance abuse, their sexual immorality, their hatred, their idolatry, they're putting other things before God. They have no place in the heavenly kingdom. Our Lord says this because he loves us. He loves us And so he warns us. He warns us because he loves us. And then he says in verse 16, I, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And our Lord is is again tenderly urging us and calling us, and he's saying to you, in your struggle to live the Christian life day by day, hour by hour, and and sometimes there's the struggles of of, of persecution, there's always the struggle of temptation, the mental battle. Never stop looking to Jesus. This is what he's saying. Never stop looking to me. He sent his angel to give this message. He is the root and offspring of David, meaning that he is God's promised, universal, eternal king and the bright morning star. And is there any more beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus than Jesus Christ, the bright morning star? Because when you see the morning star, you know that the dawn is coming. The light is coming. How how many people have suffered through a long night in in, in some kind of pain, physical pain? There are those in mental turmoil and they can't sleep and they toss and turn. How many have rejoiced to see the morning star, the promise 
of day. And God willing, the help that that day will bring. And our Lord Jesus is that morning star, our hope. And in your struggle, listen to the, the calls. Listen to the calls of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the free gift of the water of life. Again, our our Lord is tenderly calling us here in our struggles to the water of life, to that river of life described at the start of chapter 22, clear as crystal, to those who are thirsty and tired and discouraged and harassed, come and drink deeply from the water of life and it's free. In your struggle, never forget that his salvation is a free gift. In fact, the the word gospel, as you know, it means good news, but one of the ways in which it was used in the ancient world was to announce a military victory. And you might think, well, not quite sure if I could see the link. Well, imagine, imagine that, that you're in your, your, your town and your family, your loved ones are in this town and, and an enemy army, a great army is coming to attack. And in the ancient world, attacking armies would come and, and burn and pillage, and rape, and destroy. Imagine how how terrifying it would be to see a a powerful enemy army approaching, and you send out your soldiers to fight. You send out your young men to fight. And off they go. Over the horizon, their shields, and their spears, their swords. They give battle. And you're in the village. I mean, this is, there's no news coverage back then. You don't know what's going on. You're just hoping and praying that it goes well. And then a runner coming from the battlefield, running to the city. He's breathless, exhausted, but he brings the gospel. It's the same word, euangelion. It's the Greek word. He brings the good news. The good news. The enemy is defeated. We're safe. The, the, this army will no longer come and destroy us and our families. And right at that moment, you are very, very conscious that you are saved, not because of anything you have done. All you've done is, is waited at home for the news, hoping it's going to be good news. You, you, you've not gone out there with your, your, your sword and spear and shield. And so the good news is that the enemy is defeated for you. The victory has been won for you. You triumph because your army has won the victory. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ has defeated 
devil, the devil and death and sin has washed away our sin and guilt and he's done it all for us and without us. He went to the cross without us on our behalf. This is the free gift of the water of life so that every Christian will say, it is by grace I have been saved through faith and this not from myself, it is the gift of God not by works, I cannot boast. And then he finishes by saying, again, with a, with a warning, another loving warning in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And we've seen those plagues, and they're dreadful. This is a dreadful warning. And if anyone takes away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. And these words, which were written to, to warn people about the book of Revelation. Don't, don't, don't add any words. I mean, th these are the Lord's words. What have we got to add? How can we improve on them? And don't take away a single word. And what a temptation that can be. I don't really like the sound of that. Let's just gloss over it. But there's a severe warning there not to add or take away. And of course, that warning applies to all of Scripture, doesn't it? It applies to all of Scripture. How vital it is that we understand that all Scripture, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Every word has come from the mouth of God. My first sermon at Cornerstone, which I think was probably in, in February, uh, maybe March 2009. I remember it very clearly. We're over at the Philip Smith Centre and I remember choosing as my text Mark chapter 6, verse 34, which reads that when Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And I chose that passage, well, first of all, just because I love it. I, I love that. I, I love that when Jesus saw the, the, that, that crowd of people who were hungry and harassed, and he could have given them anything, right? Could have given them absolutely anything. He could have filled their pockets with money. He, he could have dropped everything to heal them just at that moment, but he didn't. He could have fed them with a great banquet. He did that sometimes. But, but in this instance, instead of healing, instead of filling their pockets with gold, instead of a banquet, this hungry, needy, harassed group of people, he gave them the one thing they most desperately needed and he began teaching them many things. I love that. It's the most important thing you could give them. 
The greatest thing he could give them was to teach them many things. To teach them about who they are and and why they were created and the purpose of their life and who God is and about our sin and our rebellion and our need for for salvation and how God, in his grace, has sent his son to die for us so that we can be set free from our sin. He taught them many things. It's the most loving thing he could have done. It was the greatest gift. And so I, I, I chose that passage because I love it and I chose it because I wanted Cornerstone to know that that would be my pole star. That I would make that the absolute centre and heart of all I did here. thought this would happen at some point. <laughs> but I knew that the greatest thing, the most important thing, was to bring the word of Christ. And you demanded that from me. For 12 years, you demanded that from me. And I thank you for that. And for 12 years, you prayed that that I would bring the word of Christ. And for 12 years, you supported me so I could do that. And you gave me what I needed so that I could focus my time and energy on teaching the word of Christ. And I thank you for that. Sorry. And what I'm asking now is that you do exactly the same for your new pastor, and I, I, I'm praying for a much more godly man. And I'm praying that you will have a pastor who will be committed to the same thing, to teaching you many things from God's word, and demand that of him as you did for me, and pray for him as you did for me. And give him the time and resources to do that as you did for me. There's no greater thing than to bring the words of life, the words of Jesus Christ. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Yes. Come, Lord Jesus. Do we want that? Do we want that? Come, Lord Jesus, our greatest hope. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Musicians, have we got a song?